Hey, welcome to the 1980 podcast. Today I am excited because I have one of my favorite guests coming today. We have Lee Lefevre. He is the founder and owner of Common Craft and the book publisher of The Art of Explanation. And he just is writing a new book that's coming out soon called Big Enough. Today we're going to be talking about Common Craft and how they blew up back in the day with explainer videos. Uh, Just about building a business that's good enough. And let's compare it to 1980 and what I'm building with this business. And then just living slower, which is what Lee is all about. And I'm really excited to to figure out what this new world of business is about. So let's get started. Welcome back. My name is Daniel Huang. And today joining with me is one of my favorite guests, by far so far, my favorite guest for this podcast, Lee LeFever. Hey, welcome, Lee. How are you doing? I'm great, Daniel. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about your book uh, because there's a lot of correlation. The reason I reached out to you is because in January, after 15 years in the consulting business, and I was going on this rat race of trying to grow, I finally stopped and I started my own company a few weeks before the pandemic. So I had no idea that this whole pandemic was going to happen. And so I started to venture out, started my own business called 1980. And the intent of it was just to create something that was scalable, that lived with my lifestyle. I have three kids. And I didn't want to work for the rest of my life. I wanted to do something that allowed me to stretch myself, but also be sustainable. And so I was very interested in your book. So why don't we start with, you know, what's big enough all about? I'm really excited. Yeah. Well, first of all, congrats on making the big jump. I think that's, that's awesome. I, I really, big enough is, is about that journey. You know, it's about, it's about doing that. I think that, I think big enough is really trying, it's really about a search for the good life in a lot of ways. It's like, what is the good life? And I think over, you know, the over the last decades, you know, I, I think I lived through the eighties. I think you, you, if your company is named 1980, I wondered if that was a reference to your birthday, maybe. It is. <laughs> But, you know, I think the good life for a long time has been get as rich as you can. And I don't think that that's for me. I don't think that's necessarily a healthy perspective. I think that there's lots of ways to be rich. And I think that money is one way. And there's if that's what you value, then that's great. But I think that you can be rich with time. I think you can be rich with freedom, autonomy, things like that. And I think the question for entrepreneurs is how do you design a business that helps you be rich in those elements? And along with, I mean, we all need money. I mean, we need to be able to pay the bills and we need to be able to support ourselves. But along with being rich with time is kind of a recalibration of what you value, what makes you happy, what what is the good life to you. And, and, and I assume you were um, you wrote this book before the pandemic happened, before COVID hit, right? <laughs> I, I did. Yeah, it was supposed to come out in May. And, and so timing wise, I mean, like this is impeccable, right? Because I, I think the one thing I learned with the pandemic was it was an opportunity for us to see that we were on an unsustainable path, like individually, but also mm-hmm. as a country or as a company, right? We were on this path of consume more, 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 more. And I think with the pandemic, what it's doing, it's forcing us to all slow down instantly. We went, we hit mm-hmm. the bricks and now we're stopped and it's giving us all a chance to reevaluate everything. And so I think your timing is impeccable. I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. I uh, never planned it, of course, but we've been feeling, Sachi and I, my wife is named Sachi and we're a partner at Common Craft. We've been thinking about these ideas for a long time. I was a little bit concerned when the pandemic hit that like, oh, now everybody is already experiencing all the things that I'm talking about. And I hope that this book is not redundant, which I don't think it is. But I'm, I've joked that I'm glad that, you know, the book is not about how to have a good handshake or something like that. That would not, not work so well. But yeah, I think the, the ideas are big enough, thankfully, fit quite well into this new environment we're all living in. And I think you're right. There is a, 
a recalibration or a, a reshuffling of things. And, you know, adding to that, last year we moved out of the city. We sold our house in Seattle and moved to a, a small island um, off the coast of Washington. And that's another <laughs> example of like, we didn't know the pandemic was coming, but we somehow were prepared. <laughs> there, there's something magical to that because I, I personally, I live in Seattle, uh, but my wife also has a home in Vashon. We have a mixed family, three kids. And so we spend half our time on Vashon on a piece of property that's about 15, 20 acres of land nice. with farming and everything. And so I get to experience both sides of the house, right? From from urban lifestyle to living in rural lifestyle. And I think with the pandemic, just being resilient, just being able to self-sustain yourself for me, like that's been just the, the comfort of knowing that I can sustain myself without the need mm-hmm. of the, the entire system. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's really true. That's at the end of Big Enough, I talk a little bit of, about that, that um, again, going back to the good life, like I think that self-sufficiency is a huge part of of this new version of the good life. You know, we, you know, uh, you asked about the book, so I, I will go a little bit more about that. So it, it kind of covers the last 12 years or so of Sachi and I basically conducting one experiment after the other with our company Common Craft to try to transition it into a business that could um, support us, but also didn't ruin our life. <laughs> and that meant, for instance, never agreeing. We started in 2008, we decided we would never have employees. Like, whatever happens, we'll never have employees. And that was a constraint that really guided a lot of our decisions over many years because there's just, there's a lot of business models that just don't work that well without employees. So we looked for ways to for that to work. And that meant looking at intellectual property, for, for instance, and trying to figure out how we could make videos that we owned and that we could sell on the internet, essentially. And and that became a big a big thrust for what ended up supporting us at Common Craft. And so you you were a very early adopter in this space. And I, I see you. I think my brother called you the OG of social media. Um, <laughs> wow, you, you were. I don't know if I go that far. <laughs> I, I think so because you guys probably made one of the first viral videos back in the day with Common Craft. And do you mind if I play a little clip just on the audio? Is that okay? Sure. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to play a little bit. This is uh, Common Craft social media in plain English. So this is how I discovered you back in. Uh, about a decade plus ago, so let's play. A I'm sure bit. you've heard the buzz. Social media may be the next big thing. What's it all about? Let's take a visit to Scoopville. All right, I'm not going to play the whole thing because it's, it's, there's a lot of really cool stuff. So for the audience here, go to commoncraft.com. And back in the day, like before infographics, before all these explainer videos have proliferated all over the internet, you guys really kind of created this niche where you use little paper cutouts to explain very complex topics in a very simple way. I'm physically holding your book called The Art of Explanation, which is making your ideas, products, and services easier to understand. And so for me, the majority of my career has always been just taking really complex business ideas, visualizing it, help explaining it. You did it in a very cool way with kind of paper cutouts. Now, it exploded. I mean, like you, you kind of just created this space. It exploded. And I would expect anyone else to just take this and run with it and kind of create the next big mega conglomerate. And you and your wife chose not to. You kind of intentionally kept it small at scale. Why? That's a really good question. Um, it came out of nowhere. Um, the uh, We saw that social media was becoming a big thing and we thought it needed better explanations. We, we wanted people to adopt social media. This was in 2006, 2007. So YouTube was just getting started. Twitter, social networking, wikis, all those things were just getting started. And we thought, man, we could, if we can just explain this better, then there's a need out there for that. And um 
we uh, did it on a lark in a lot of ways. Like we didn't put a lot of thought into it. Um, it was Sachi's idea to use the paper cutouts. And um, we just wanted to explain social media. And yeah, it kind of came uh, as a huge surprise to us that people were so into it. And they, you're right, it was a viral thing, which is really down to timing. I think you, we hit YouTube right in the early days where people were looking for that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we started off with, in services like making custom videos. That was our start in terms of making income from our videos, because we've always published, you know, especially in the early days, one video a month that were our property, along with working with companies to do their videos. The second video we did explained Google Docs. And that was a really early, uh, fun video. And, you know, we're both very entrepreneurial people. You know, Sachi has an MBA. Not that that really is matters that much, but we both are students of business. And we knew the difference between products and services, but we weren't sure how to uh how to do that with our videos. Um, and it was really our, uh, our, like a question that we always ask and continue to ask is, you know, when looking at a business opportunity, you can ask, what if it works? Like if this works and people come to us and want it all day, every day, what does that do to the business? What does that do to our personal lives? And in services, if it works, then you have to hire. You have to have a team of people because a human can only work so many hours in a day. And that's where your income is. Your income is tied to the humans. Uh, with products, the the, work, the income is tied to a scalable product, a product that can be sold, made once and sold multiple times. And we saw that early on and thought, um, you know, these are videos. These videos are different than, you know, Microsoft PowerPoint, but really they're kind of the same. <laughs> they can be sold online. Um, and we asked, what if it works with that model? And we luckily had people asking for downloads of the videos. And um, we saw the potential to slowly transition to uh, our business to being small and choosing never to hire uh, to, to try to protect the opportunity so that we could stay in control of it. Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs uh, go in one direction and then things get out of control. Um, and we tried to stay in control. And then, so you could have just grown this into a big production house where you're just pumping out videos for companies all day long and, and making lots of money. Um, I think you did sell some licenses to your paper cutouts. You did some sort of membership program for Common Craft mm -hmm. where you can subscribe and, and get, I mean, you were, again, a very early adopter back in the day before subscriptions mm -hmm. were even a thing. Um, and, and other business models, I, I actually use, uh, what is I, I use Vion, which is kind of like an online animation video. And then they mm -hmm. have an option where I could use one of your products, your paper cutouts as that's one of the templates as well. And so you explored various different business models. What's your guiding path? Like, how do you figure out how to make some of these really tough decisions? I think it really just comes from, from mine and Sachi's perspective of what we want Common Craft to be for us. I think that, again, it kind of goes back to the good life idea, but we found that we could be happy and satisfied serving a relatively small group of, of customers. And you know, kind of. I don't know if you remember in like 2008 or so, Kevin Kelly published an essay called uh, 1000 True Fans. Mm -hmm. And it was really influential for us. And I still think it holds true that basically, if you can figure out a way to sell your work to a thousand fans a year that you can make six figures and support yourself. And there's a couple of constraints. You have to work directly with them. You know, you, there's no middle people, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, things like that. And that's always been sort of our, our, our guiding principle is, 
not trying to be the next Slack or Microsoft or anything like that. We don't aspire to that. We aspire to have a scalable business that can that can grow with our customers, but um, also be also operate in a scalable way where it's mostly self-service. It's it's designed to be lightweight in terms of management and overhead and to not have a lot of overhead. Um, I think that ultimately overhead, whether it's your personal overhead or your business overhead, if you keep that low, then it doesn't take that many customers to support what you're doing. Um, and, and being in a pandemic right now, you're probably feeling pretty good, right? Not sitting on a massive overhead or having a gigantic mm-hmm. agency with cameras and equipment and and. And lots of people on on payroll and trying to figure out how to manage through that through a pandemic. And so you must be much more resilient. You're probably weathering the storm much better than the average company, I'm assuming, right? I think we were positioned well for that. Um, not again, not because we thought ahead about a pandemic necessarily, but it's just the nature of our business. I think that our our business has um it's been it's it's, it's fine. It's not like we're not Zoom. We're not. Uh, I think Khan Academy is doing amazingly well. They, they're, you know, they're a different model. They're all free, so a lot of people are looking for free resources, and I, I totally um, get that. But yeah, our overhead is low enough that we can kind of go into a mode where we reduce expenses super low and can can weather a storm. And that that's really one of the big messages of Big Enough. There's a whole chapter devoted to something that I call the monitorium. And it's like a moratorium on spending money. And we've been doing it for over a decade when we have a goal. Like if we want to do a house renovation or if we wanted to travel, we might spend a few months or even a year or more in this mode of living where we do do away with luxuries and extraneous expenses and cook at home and entertain at home and don't travel and all these things. And that's our way of of transitioning our lives into a mode where we can, in that case, save money, but that mode also works in terms of weathering a storm too. That That's a pre- perfect segue because I wanted to get a little bit into your personal life a little bit, if that's okay. Sure. And then I'm yeah. going to end this wrapping just on the business level, like getting back into the call to action for everyone uh, w- with this message here. But let's get to know Lee a little bit personally. I'm looking at, it looks like you're in an apartment right now and you're, you must, you're doing some home renovation and or building a home. Or and, and you're in Orcas Island, and for those of you who are not familiar, it is an island off the peninsula in, in Washington State. So if you look at Washington State geographically, there's a bunch of tiny little islands. Orcas Island is one of those. I live in Bashan. It's another island closer to the, the southern uh, Seattle area. Tell us a little bit about uh, Orcas Island. How'd you guys land mm-hmm. into there, and, and a little bit about your lifestyle there? Yeah, about three years ago, we were camping here on Orcas Island and thought like wow, it would be really cool to be able to have property here. Like we didn't think we could build a house or anything, but we thought Orcas Island is probably going to be growing in uh, popularity. And if we could reserve our spot, we could, we could, you know, someday build. So within like six months, we had like started looking around and eventually found a nice piece of property with a, a, a little rundown house on it. And that started this whole journey over the next few years saw us move completely to the island, sell our house in Seattle and just make Orcas Island home. And we have no regrets about that whatsoever. And it all took us again by surprise. So yeah, right now I'm living in an apartment over a neighbor's garage. It's all one room. You can kind of see a little bit. And we, after selling our house, we started a project down the road of building um, our forever house, Common Craft Headquarters down the road from here. And we're probably about four or five months from moving into that. So I'm in a really 
weird phase right now where my book is coming out. I'm moving into a house during a pandemic all within a few months and a presidential election. <laughs> Not that I personally have a connection to that, but it's all happening all this fall. So it's going to be a pretty wild fall, I think. Wow. And so, so you're building this home. Is this, did you intend on building kind of like studio space or a workspace as, as part of your business? Yes. I like to work in an office. Saatchi works on couches and other places around the house, but I need an office. And I'm really looking forward to setting up something similar to what you have eventually. We, you know, I, I know that you've said online recently that you feel like everybody, you know, will be doing media of one form or another. I saw that you were experimenting with the mm-hmm app too. And I, I just recently got my invite. So I would love to do yes. that too. But yeah, I really do want to set up something similar and do more um, streaming, do more, you know, live talking, <laughs> talking head kinds of things. Like I, I enjoy that. I'm, I'm going to push my audience and all of us. The reason that I've been pushing this so hard is because I, I think the world needs this, right? The world needs more sense making, understanding on what's going on. And what I'm seeing right now in our country, and I'm getting a little political, but just a lack of leadership in explaining to people what's going on. How are we handling the pandemic? How do we adjust for a, a recession and, and and working in the global economy? And, and, and as the U.S. becomes no longer the number one economy in the world, like what does this mean to all of us, right? And I think what you and, and your wife's doing with, with Common Craft was a way of just explaining very complex ideas in a way that people can understand. And I love with the paper cutout approach. I also love, I think there's some correlations with big enough, right? And for all of us, it's like, do we really need to be in this constant consumption economy where we're just growing, 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 growing? Because what I, I see with you personally and, and your wife, what you're doing is scaling back. I'm doing the same for myself, which is I'm only working hard because I'm trying to get that next big thing. I, you know, I want the bigger house and the fancier mm -hmm. car and this and this and this for, for what reason? And so mm -hmm. what purpose? And so for me, like I think just leaders as a message, how do we communicate more inspiring messages and impact more uh, human life? How do we make everything better mm -hmm. uh, and i think you can do that through communications or through relaying powerful messages being uh, passionate in your message and so i think that's yep. where I, I find a lot of inspiration in your work I, I appreciate that yeah i think we do i do we do need more of it I, one of the reasons that i wrote the art of explanation is i think that we're all better off with more explainers and people who actually approach communication from a way that focuses on clarity and empathy and and things like that it is unfortunate that so much communication does not do that. It's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of it that's focused on selling, which, you know, I think that commercials are probably, as much as I don't like commercials, they're oftentimes great explanations. Like when there's a sales motive, it motivates people to really look for ways to communicate clearly. But when it comes to things like government and society, it's it's really tough for people. And I, But I think that your, you know, your point about other people, people like us being media stars, I like to think that the conversation we're having today is something that shows real people, that shows empathy, that shows connection. And I think that's what gets people engaged in new ideas. I don't think it, it definitely doesn't happen in press releases. It doesn't happen in necessarily news stories. I think journalists are great explainers, but they also are very much in the journalist kind of style of that. I mean, Vox, Ezra Klein, people that are doing work like that do that do that in amazing ways too. But yeah, I, one of the things, a little anecdote about that is, you know, I wrote, the Art of Explanation in 2012, or it published in 2012. And we, we started making videos in 2007. And I think that I had this idea that what people were missing was a, a, a presentation of facts. Like if, if you could just present facts in the right way, 
they would get it and they might change their minds and they might change their perceptions. And <laughs> unfortunately, what I've learned through the last few years is that's true for some people. <laughs> there are a lot of people for whom their tribe matters more. Their, their personal connections to ideas matter more. And you can't explain something to someone who doesn't want to, to learn it. <laughs> and that's been something that I've kind of struggled with. Like, how do you think about that as an explainer, knowing that your explanation, no matter how clear, no matter how backed up with sources it is, is just not going to matter to some people. And that's kind of a struggle. You know, I wish that I had the answer to that, but I think that empathy, personal connections, conversations, that, that really helps a lot. I, I think as a comms professional, I do communications internal within companies and a tool that we use is just, you know, what do you want your audience to think, feel, do, right? And and like mm-hmm. you said, you mentioned a lot of facts and what I see typically when I'm working with uh, leaders and other people that are trying to sell something or kind of create some sort of change is they stay on the facts, facts, facts. And what's mm-hmm. sometimes missing is that feeling component, right? How do you kind of create something where people have empathy to you or you start you know, tugging at the heartstrings? And so things mm-hmm. can be super complex but at the end of the day, you need something that is just some some sound bite or some little piece that really resonates and it stays mm-hmm. in the heart. And the longer yeah. it stays there, and that's how you really affect change because yep. we're surrounded by facts all day long. And that's, yeah, that's what I'm sure. starting to see. Yeah, there's um, – oh, shoot. I, I, I have a video in our – we have a – Explainer Academy is a course where we te- – where courses we teach explanation. But we, I, we made a video. I can't remember who it was, but it was a great philosopher who had the elements of persuasion. And it's like ethos, logos, and yeah, but that's kind of what you're talking about. There's like, there's facts, there's Mm -hmm. feeling, there's logic. And like the, that's a, you know, I love how the Greeks kind of were among the first, along with the Eastern philosophers to kind of understand, you know, that, wow, that's how humans actually think about things. But I think it's really true. Uh, maybe I'll send a link out to that video if you're, I, if you're I, I would love that. I would love that. So <laughs> lately, I feel like I could talk with you all day long of this stuff because this is incredible. You're going to be doing more podcasts as part of this book launch. Is that right? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a couple schedule, schedule, I, yes. I hope, you know, people like yourself, myself, I'm pushing myself to be out there and being more front facing because traditionally I'm the person behind the cameras filming or I'm the person behind the camera or doing the animations and editing for mm-hmm. explaining for someone else on behalf of someone else. Sure. I would love people like yourself, myself, to step out in the the, the light and be on the spotlight because I think I'd love you have a really powerful message. You have this book that I'm really excited to read and, and share with others. Um, I'm in this cutting edge niche community called No Coders. People are that are building technology um, using apps like Webflow or, or other tools out there that's super easy to co- do without code. Mm-hmm. And they're building lifestyle businesses. They're they're building products and services, and they're they're really excited and but I think there's there's a balancing message. And for me, like this is what 1980 is about is because 1980, I grew up in a world before the internet. I grew up in a world where I use dial-up uh, modems. You know, I, I use a rotary dial-up phone. And I think there's something about, we, we've gone so far on the digital side and there's a little bit of pullback that I want to do with the world, right? Like how do you get back to some of the nature, be connected to mm-hmm. nature, be connected to human relations, like talking to someone as opposed to simply always transacting by digital. Mm-hmm. And I love where you're talking about building something that's scaling with your lifestyle, but I think you can also scale with society, kind of build stuff that's sustainable, build stuff that makes the world better. And so yep. much of our talent today is is really centered around marketing and selling stuff. Like so much of our Facebook talent <laughs> that's, yeah, wasted just, away just, just trying to market you to buy crap that we don't need. Yeah, And I, I hope that you and I can help 
relay a message that there's something greater out there than simply selling more crap, right? Mm-hmm. And I think if we tap into that talent, and I'm, I'm speaking mostly to, to Gen Z, this new generation that's coming up, you have everything that's possible in front of you, every piece of technology that's available, you have the internet, and then you have amazing people like Lee that I'm talking to here who's bringing a very powerful message. Is You can take what you know, you can take your capabilities and put it towards good rather than simply just putting it towards selling more ads or selling more things. And I hope some people take this message and really truly build the next app that's going to make the world better or build the next service or product that's going to make the world better. And you, I think you and your wife are a good living example where you don't need to be a multimillionaire living in some gigantic mansion. Like you can actually be on the land and still produce digital stuff remotely. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that message. I really hope that we're all successful in, in, in having that come to fruition for things like uh, Gen Z. I totally agree. You know, a couple of things that that kind of brings to mind. I was just talking to Sachi the other day about, you know, the prevalence of Zoom calls now and how, you know, when we would work with people in the past, it would always be just a normal phone call. And even though it's digital mediated, we're doing Zoom now. Like, it's just like, oh yeah, I guess we'll do a Zoom. Um, and like you see their faces and it's like a, more of a connection than we had with phones. You know, even, even when the internet was here, we were still using phones for a lot of things. Like the dream of the video call is alive now and we can finally do that. And I, I think it's, I think that's good. Um, in the process, the second thing is in the process of, of doing all the house stuff, I'm, we're making a lot of decisions about like siding and debt materials and these big, big, big decisions. and. Um, I started just picking up the phone and calling people and talking to them. <laughs> you know, this is not on Zoom in this case, but versus like just using the website, using a contact form, trying to talk to someone in an email. It's like, that's was my approach for decades to dealing with things. And now I just like, pick, there's no replacement for actually having a conversation with someone. So I, ha- I had um, to pick up my, I'm, I'm picking up my phone right now and there's this green app on my phone. It says phone. I've never actually used it before. It's, Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I think uh, slight slight joke there. But I think for for most people, I think growing up, I remember the only way to communicate back in the day was to actually literally pick up the phone, right? You, yeah. The internet didn't exist, email didn't exist, websites didn't exist, and so there was something about human connection, picking up the phone and talking. It's almost it's very yeah. nostalgic right now to even use have a phone call, especially like, I'm, I'm more of a digital native. But I think this newer generation is like the concept of I, I do everything over the internet. And the other uh-huh. day, I actually did takeout where I called and talked to a person and I showed up and was like, hey, I was that person on the phone. Nice to meet you. I received some food <laughs> for great. you as opposed to just doing like an, an Uber delivery or something. But Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah, I think that being being here on the island has been interesting in that in that way. Of course, again, pandemic makes it, makes it a little bit weird. But living in Seattle, I, you know, so many people are involved in tech in one way or another that there's an acceptance of tech and an expe- expectation of tech. And, you know, I was, and I got a first version of the, uh, you know, Amazon Echo and we still have it. We still use it. And people on the island are like, you let that thing into your house. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I mean, it has a microphone, but so does your computer. And so does your phone. Like, and that's been really interesting to see a different version of how technology is perceived by people yep. and used by people. And like, I think, in the big enough idea of simplifying and maybe living in a rural place, 
I don't think that message is like, oh, and stop using technology. Like that's not it. Like one of the things we can be here is we have a fiber optic internet connection at our, our new place. It's faster connection than we could get in Seattle. And that's really been the big, a big change that's supporting this move for us and a lot of people like us. And maybe it's the same on Vashon for you is that the infrastructure is changing um, along with workplace. Like workplaces are allowing you to be other places now. And I like to think that people can, uh, like you're doing and like we're going to be doing soon is like finding a place that makes you happy. You know, like you might not question whether you could live outside the city until the business says you can. <laughs> and then you think, wow, maybe I could do that. <laughs> and I think there's some happiness to, to, to that and also some efficiency. Very, yeah. very, very wise uh, words there, Lisa. Let's close out. And your book is available. It looks like it's coming out September 15th. That's right. So, it's available yeah, for pre-order right now. Available yep. for pre-order. I'm going to get a copy of myself. So big enough, uh, building a business with that scales with your lifestyle. And then also, we can check you out at commoncraft.com. That's right. Yep. Uh, and the book is at leelafever.com. That's where the you know the sales page is for it too. But I've been blogging almost every day at Leela Fever. This is kind of like uh, inspired by what you're saying. Well, this is kind of uh, indicative of what you're saying is, is my version of putting myself out there is blogging more. I do want to do more things like you're doing too. So maybe someday I'll interview you. That would be my, awesome. From my office with the awesome camera and microphone. That would be awesome. I used to be a blogger back in the day and I stopped and then I think the internet, you know, Facebook and everything kind of took over social media. And I think there, I, I love going back to just owning my own blog and owning my own space and just producing content and getting out there. Just the purity of yep. content, not for likes, not for uh, you know, mm-hmm. comments and hearts, but really just for the purity of it. So I really enjoy it. Hey, thank you, Lee, for joining. I hope everyone enjoys this conversation here that we've had. Definitely, I'm going to go check out the book, uh, Big Enough, uh, Building a Business That Scales With Your Lifestyle. So thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. 